We're gonna, we're gonna walk into John chapter 10, if you will, take your Bibles, turn in your phones or your iPads, whatever you have, and turn to John chapter 10. I'll be reading now the New American Standard this morning as well. So in John chapter 10, I believe the apostle John, as he picked up pen, he was writing to us that we might have faith, that we might believe. I think he was addressing doubt in this book as well, in this account of, the Jesus, of Jesus's life. It tells us in John 20, Paul, the Apostle John was telling us that he's writing these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in him. And so this morning, I think Jesus is continuing that, that kind of uh, conversation as he walks into chapter 10, and the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle John has beautifully written this letter and written this account of the life of Jesus. If you remember in chapter nine, when we were there, it was the account of where Jesus healed the man who had been born blind. It was an amazing uh, miracle that took place. I mean, the, the, the Pharisees were asking the man, they called in his parents, they were asking his neighbor, they're trying to find out if there was anything that was going on here because this was such a dramatic healing. If you remember right, no one else had ever healed anybody born blind. In fact, there's no account of any of the disciples ever doing any kind of a healing where someone received their sight. The closest might be when Apostle Paul, the scales fell from his eyes as Ananias prayed over, prayed over him. But other than that, there is no account. In fact, if you go into the Old Testament, you can see there's just some kind of a messianic theme of, of God giving sight to his people that they might know that who the Christ is. And you see in chapter nine, that's what takes place where Jesus has healed this man born blind who, who sits there and he goes, hey, I don't know anything. All I know is I couldn't see and now I can see. And that Jesus performed this great, this great miracle. In fact, what's interesting is you find the Pharisees now becoming divided. Some of them were saying he's from God because he had performed such a great miracle that he has to be from God. And others were saying, no, he's not. He's a sinner. Why? Because he healed on the Sabbath. Can you believe that? That Jesus would heal on the Sabbath? And that was, a, that was breaking their laws and their structure. And they're trying to figure out how does Jesus fit into their system that they now have created through tradition of laws and, 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 and traditions that they had in their faith. And Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. So therefore they assume he's a sinner. But no one has ever has ever made someone to see who had been blind from birth. It was an amazing miracle. So we walk into chapter 10. Some people would say that this section might be close to around a feast that's taking place. And in fact, there's a reference to it in verse 22 of this chapter. But in verse 21, you still see this division going on among those who are following Jesus, especially the Jews. And some of them are still saying that, that Jesus, he has to be from God because he, he gave sight to the blind. So I, I believe this section of the scripture really kind of carries on that idea out of chapter nine. And Jesus begins to, to use a, an illustration, if you will, that everybody in Palestine at that time would have had an understanding of. They, the, 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 the occupation of, of herding sheep and keeping sheep was very well known. There was a very dominant occupation in that day. And people would see the sheep herders and so forth in those days and saw the things that were going on. So Jesus uses this illustration. And in this illustration, he's drawing out the relationship between him and his people. 
If you looked in the last part of chapter 9, one of the Pharisees kind of hear Jesus talking, and they ask this question. They say, well, are we blind also? In other words, obviously, of all the people in Palestine, the one group of people who are not blind, who have spiritual sight, are the Pharisees, right? And Jesus kind of responds, well, since you say you see, you are blind. And I believe he walks into this section to really kind of expound on this relationship of those who understand who God is and their relationship with God and the intimacy of that relationship that should be taking place with every believer. Jesus didn't just give an abundant life to a few of us. He gave it to all who would believe. And so this picture that Jesus begins to draw out in chapter 10 is to kind of illustrate this relationship. So I want to start by reading Uh, The first five verses of chapter 10, my eyes are still watering all these allergies, I guess. I I don't know. So I'm not crying up here. I just want you all to know that. I don't don't want to be accused of that. No, just kidding. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 10 says, truly, truly. Let me me stop right there. And and you guys have heard this before if you've been with me in in chapter 9 or in the Gospel of John. But whenever you hear, see truly, truly, it's a marker. It's an emphasis. We would put an explanation point. Like when I, when I type, and I'm, I'm kind of one of those passionate typers, so like I'll write a sentence, put an explanation point at the end, end of the sentence, and write another one, put another explanation point. That's just kind of, but when I really mean it, man, I put three or four explanation points, right? Because I want you to understand what I just said is really awesome, really wonderful. And yeah, I don't use periods. I use explanation points, everything. No, I'm just kidding. But anyways, here Jesus is making a point, and he's saying truly, truly. And the word truly here literally means it is true. And so what he's saying is, it is true, it is true. You should hear what I'm about to say. It is true, it is true. I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. So Jesus is beginning to describe this this way of keeping sheep. In verse two, he goes on, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Verse three, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls to his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Verse five, and a stranger they simply will not follow but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Now it's interesting that as Jesus begins to, to lay this out in verse one, he's, he's describing this sheepfold, or if you will, a pen. Usually had four walls around it. Uh, it could have been made out of stone or kind of a mud brick-like kind of material that was built up to, to herd the sheep in so they would be protected at night from, from thieves and robbers, wolves, anything that would come to hurt and destroy the sheep. And there was only one way in, just this little doorway to go into the sheep was the pitcher. Sometimes it was used, they would use uh, caves too because there was no other way to get in and around the cave. So they had this cave opening and they would herd their sheep into the cave so they would be protected. And the shepherd a lot of times would just lay across the doorway. So nobody could go into the, to the, to the sheep unless the shepherd knew about it. No, no animal, no, no thief, no one could enter in. So they, he would provide protection. And so, so then it says that everyone who enters by the door is part of the fold of the sheep. But anybody that climbs up some other way or goes some other way to try to get to the sheep, there are thieves and robbers. 
It's interesting that word for thief there kind of implies trickery or kind of a subtle deception where somebody is trying to to kind of deceive you. You know, I remember back when I was working in the gas station in high school and I remember they had these kind of folks that would come in and try to quick change you, you know, where, you know, get more money out of you and they all can have change for this, have change, change for that. And I remember this one time, this, this guy and this couple came in, the girl kind of came around here and she wasn't dressed very well and she's trying to get my attention, but I'm paying attention. And so the guy's trying to do this with all that and they're trying to deceive me. She keeps trying to talk to me and all that. And, and all of a sudden there's a lot of money laying out on the table. And I looked and I go, you know, I don't know where we're at. And I picked it all up, put it in my drawer. I said, it's all mine. And they, they were all freaked out by that, right? I, I, I won that battle because I didn't fall for the deception. I didn't fall for the trickery. Thieves come to try to deceive and, 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 and to, to trick you. And Jesus saying those that are coming, that he's, he's really contrasting himself to those, the Pharisees and those of the day, those false teachers who would try to deceive and trick the people of God because they didn't care about the people of God. They don't care that I might lose my job if I come up short. They don't care the, the impact on me. They only care for themselves. In fact, that word robber there has the idea of violence or plundering, that they would come to kill for their own their own needs. They have no care for the sheep. So, so Jesus is drawing this out and in both cases the, gives this idea that, hey, they don't, they don't have a concern for the sheep. He, he says that goes on, enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd enters through the door because the sheep know him. They don't run in fear because they know the shepherd and that's how he, how he enters. And he's contrasting again himself from those that, that would deceive and, and, and hurt and destroy. In fact, he, he goes on in verse 3 and he describes how the sheep hears his voice and, and, and the shepherd's voice and they come to him. It's interesting. I read uh, by Pastor Morton, an old-time uh, theologian, and he described one time... <clears throat> He described one time seeing this take place where two shepherds had taken their herds the night before and they pushed them into a cave and there was only one way in. And the sheep mixed among themselves, among the, among the, the, the herd. And so the next morning he had observed the shepherd came out and one walked off to, from a distance from the, from the entry of the cave and the other one watched off, went off the other direction and they just began to call the sheep out one by one. And as they come, you'd see a one of the sheep come running out and one of them run over to the other shepherd. They just, you know, maybe two or three as they kept calling the sheep. And before long, they weren't, they weren't mixed up anymore. The shepherd had all of his sheep and he had all of his. It wasn't like, oh, you got some of my sheep and I got, no, the sheep know the voice of their shepherd. And Jesus is drawing this illustration out to, to teach about that intimate relationship between him and his people. You see, in Palestine, shepherds led their, their sheep. They didn't drive their sheep. In other countries, you might see where they have sheepdogs and, and the shepherd follows the sheep and the sheepdog keeps the, the, the herd moving and, and keeps them in, in line so they don't get lost and wander away. And the, and the shepherd follows behind. But in Palestine, that's not how they do that. They actually go out before the sheep and they call them and the sheep follow because they know the shepherd's voice. It's, it's, it's really a beautiful picture of our relationship with Christ. 
that we follow him trusting. The sheep didn't know where the shepherd was going. They only knew the shepherd was leading them and they trust the shepherd. And it's interesting that Jesus draws us out in this, this picture of the shepherd walking before and the sheep hearing his voice and knowing his voice. In verse five, it says, a stranger they will simply not follow but will flee from him. If, if a, another shepherd went and took a shepherd's outfit and his clothing and, and he put them on and tried to imitate his call and began to call the sheep, the sheep wouldn't come. In fact, they would flee from him because they knew he wasn't their shepherd. In fact, in Palestine, when a shepherd died, it was tragedy for that herd because there was no one else that they were gonna follow. Only the shepherd was the one that they would follow. And Jesus draws this, this picture that, that was very familiar in his day of what a shepherd does. And, and he describes this, this pen and only one way to enter and, and the protection of the pen. And that, that all the others, the thieves and the robbers, they don't, they don't care about the sheep. In fact, when a shepherd brought in and he came through the doorway and the sheep would come, the shepherd would begin to inspect the sheep. Maybe they brushed up against a bush and a thorn had, had cut them and they would, they would address the wound. Or maybe the sheep were thirsty and they would give them, give them water. Or he would see what the need of the sheep was and he would take care of that. And he would provide safety and, and structure. And so, so Jesus uses this illustration. But if you look in verse six, it's interesting. It says this, to Apostle John kind of interjects here in the midst of Jesus' teaching, and he says, this figure of speech, this illustration, this parable what, that, that Jesus just, just gave, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. In other words, they didn't understand that, that relationship because they didn't understand the voice of God. It's interesting, I've Ever, ever since I've started this study in John way back a few months ago and just in the times when it was, I got to preach and walking through this, this was one chapter that's been kind of just gnawing at me. Because I started asking myself the question, how do we miss the voice of God? I mean, I mean how do we miss when he's speaking to us? How do we get deceived and, and tricked and plundered and robbed. How, is that, how does that happen? What are, what are the things that, that take place? And I think Jesus goes on and he begins to answer some of these things beginning in verse seven. He says in verse seven, Jesus therefore said to them, here it is again, it is true, it is true. I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Verse nine, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Interesting picture. Jesus now, not, now just comes out and says, I'm the door. I'm the only way. There's not another way in because the ones that are crawling up and over, they're thieves and robbers. They don't care about the sheep. They don't care about the things of the shepherd. They only care about their own needs. And Jesus describes and says, I'm this door. The thieves and the robbers, they walk by, but the, my sheep don't hear them because they don't know their voice. They know my voice, the shepherd. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing picture. In fact, he, he says there in verse nine, he says, 
He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me or by me, there's no other way. He shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture, the idea of security and being, and being supplied what you need. I love that. I love that phrase. You shall, you shall be saved. I was a, I was a young man. I remember sitting in that church. My parents had started taking me to church because of some of the things I was getting involved in, hoping that church would somehow make a difference, right? i never forget that Sunday morning, and I'm sitting there in the church, and the pastor was preaching John chapter 14, verse 6. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody, no one comes to the Father but by me. I never forget that because I, was growing, I grew up in projects. Everybody I knew lied. I mean, we all lied. It was just part of, part of life. You just lied. You, you never trusted anybody. I heard my parents lie. I heard everybody lie. And I'll never forget as that pastor was preaching and he said, Jesus said, I am the truth. I was like, boy, I need truth in my life. At the end of the service, the pastor gave an invitation and I got up and went forward because I wanted to know more about what he just talked about. I believe the spirit of God was moving within my heart. And I remember going forward and, and there was a guy who took me to the side, off to, really it was like a little room, and he began to explain to me the gospel and that, that we all had come short of the glory of God, that we all had sinned and, and fallen short. And then I learned of that condition, why, why did I so easily lie? Why did I so easily do these things that I was doing? And, and he explained to me the fallen nature of humanity. But there was a free gift of God that brought eternal life. And he talked about God demonstrating his love towards me, even when I was in this fallen state that Christ died for me. It was a wonderful story. My heart, I can still, even as I stand here and share it, can feel my heart pounding as I, as I, as I share it, as, as he talked about the salvation that God had provided through his son. And he, and he told me, if, if I just simply called out, if I simply trusted him, I would be saved. That day I received Christ into my life. Like a Southern Baptist, good Southern Baptist church, the next Sunday night, um, we were getting baptized. It was a big church. I mean, we had big, set like two, you know, I don't even know how many people. It was a huge bottom. There was a balcony. And the baptistry was like up there, like, like where that curtain is. It was up high where everybody could see it. And when you came out, you walked out in the water and there was, a, there was kind of a wall there and you would walk around. The pastor was on the other side of the wall and you kind of walk around the next person and so forth and you get baptized. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into you know, I, I, I was still trying to figure all this stuff out. I just, you know, I just knew what God did and I knew this was kind of like an act of obedience. So I said, I'm gonna, you know, I was doing it. And I remember walking around and the pastor grabbed a hold of me. And he, man, he grabbed my nose. It hurt so hard. I mean, he gripped it hard. I thought I had a bruise. And he splashed me into the water before I knew what was going up. But it was amazing as he brought me out of the water and the water was running off my face. He said, raise to walk in a newness of life. And my life was never the same, never the same. Because there's only one name under heaven by which we can be saved. And that is Jesus. 
He is the only way. He's the only entrance. He's the only door. He says to them, I am the door. I am the way. There is no other way. No one enters in but through me and by me, him alone. You see, one of the ways that we don't hear God's voice is unbelief. That if you're here today and you've not received Christ, you've not trusted in Christ for your salvation, then you're in a state of unbelief. You're in a situation of hopelessness, unable to deliver yourself. Only by the grace and the mercy of God in, in, his, in the salvation he provided through his son, Jesus Christ. And he calls you, he calls you to believe. He calls you to believe. He goes on and he says, Jesus says in verse 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. The thief, he comes and he comes to steal and, and he comes to kill. He comes to destroy. He comes with his own purposes and plans and he has no care for the sheep. He has no care for the people of God. And Jesus says, I came that they might have life. And it's interesting in the, in the Greek, it's a present active. In other words, that they might keep on having life. It's not just a mountaintop experience, it is a life experience. It is every step that we take and every moment that we breathe, when we're breathing in and we're breathing out, we are children of God by faith. And he gives us that abundant life. It's to keep on going on. It's abundant, meaning surplus. We're overflowing. That, that we experience God in all of our, in our life, and our walks with him. I think sometimes unbelief steals that from us. We begin to think God doesn't mean the best, where we, we think that we have to attain like certain levels of faith, so we certain ways that we conduct ourselves, like we keeping laws or not missing church or giving all that we, you know, all these things, we think that gives us a closer walk with God. They are good things. But it's that intimacy with God and our relationship with him, walking by faith, step by step. I've come to realize our walk, my, my walking by faith is not getting the answers I want. Walking by faith as believing that God's answers are the best. That his answers for me are the best. And sometimes he tells me no, and sometimes he gives me something I really don't want to deal with in order to grow me. I, I come to realize the Christian life isn't about being on the mountaintop. Man, I've looked back over my life and realized it's in the valleys when I've learned the greatest things about my God. I've learned that he's able to sustain me and to keep me. I experience the comfort of God in the middle of chaos and, and the joy of God in the middle of pain. Peace when everything seems to be separated and coming apart. It's in those moments that we, by faith, realize who our God is and that abundant life, that life that he gives us, that sustaining life, that constant life that we live by faith, that we walk by faith. Unbelief can sometimes steal that. Something else I thought about as well is that a voice causes us sometimes to miss God's voice is, is our busyness, just how busy we are. I mean, work and family and, 
and all of our kids' activities. I mean, my kids graduated from high school. I went through nine or 10 years of band. Thank God it's over, you know? I mean, you know how much time that, that deals with you? It's like, man, they want your life and your blood. They just suck it out of you and your time, you know? It's incredible. Sorry, I'm not trying to, all those teachers in schools. And, but it does. These, all these activities, they, they, they weigh on us. Not to mention, you know, technology and computers and, and internet. I mean, phones. I don't, I don't have mine on me this morning because there are some people that know if I have my phone, they will start calling it just to bug me, you know. So I, I don't carry my phone. I preach. It's interesting, I was given an article this week and I was reading it. And in the article, it said that we kind of tap, swipe, or you know, type in it, our smartphones, over 2,600 times a day on an average. 2,600 times a day. I was trying to count the other day, but I lost count. I was hoping I wouldn't be that much. In fact, there was another survey that said 50% of the people that they surveyed would rather have a broken arm or a broken bone than a broken phone. <laughs> like, really? You know, I mean, like, yeah, someone's, yeah. I mean, if you're honest, I mean, because there's, and then the article went on and it described that when we use our phones and we get those messages, the dopamine is released and we get a rush from it. It's the same thing that happens when you're taking a drug or some other, some other deal and it actually can be an addictive device and nobody talks about it. We don't want to talk about it because we don't want to have our phones taken away, right? But, but it can become so addicting that it, that it can smear and, and deceive us and lead us away from the voice of God just in the busyness of our life. That's why a lot of times I set my phone down and walk away or ignore it sometimes so I can get something done. But it's not just busyness. It's sometimes just just life. This year has been a tough year for me. I, I've had to deal with some things physically. I missed a week and a half of work. I don't think I've missed a week and a half of work my whole life before that. I don't miss work. But it was a very difficult time. Lydia, my wife, she got some bad tests and you start feeling those burdens. I was planning community outreach and some things weren't going well. I, was, I described this year as like Nell and Jello to the wall. It was very frustrating. I had to plan a leader cast and it's a leadership conference. And I was, I was just, now I'm getting ready for Tanzania and there's all these messages bouncing around in my head. And there, you just, all of a sudden in all of the midst of it, it can wear us and it can, it can cause us to miss out on the voice of God. And, it's, and, it, and I go back to Psalm 46. It's my favorite psalm. Psalm 46 and verse 10, you know it well. Be still and know that I am God. Aren't we saying it? This lean in the love and the hope of our beautiful Father and breathe it in and know that he is good. In Psalm 46, the description of Israel is that they're surrounded by an army that's gonna attack them and, and crush them and, and there's anxiety and there's fear. The world seems to be coming apart. And in the middle of it, the psalmist says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, be still, cease striving, and know I am God. In the middle of all of the activities, in the middle of all of it, sometimes we just need to stop 
And we need to just be still. This morning, driving in, because the last couple of days I put together, I was working through several messages and things, and I was driving in, and I was like, oh, Lord, I've, I just got my mind all so confused. I could even feel my heart pounding a little bit in me, and that doesn't happen very often. I was just, I was just anxious. Not, I don't, not for any other reason than just all of these thoughts and these worries. And I had to just pull away. I had to go in my office and just, Lord, you are my God. If I have flubbed this up, these are your people. I'm dependent on you to speak to your people. I have nothing for them. But, oh, God, will you speak to your people? I have, to, I have to trust you. I have to come back and realize that he's God. And it's the same thing in your lives. When you're, when you're torn apart in family because of all the activities or different things going on, God, you are God. You're the Lord of my family. I can trust you with my family. I can trust you. It doesn't mean we do nothing. It simply means that we find our dependence in him. And we can hear his voice in those, those times. Another reason I think why sometimes we miss God's voice is simply because of sin. Sin causes us to miss his voice. He, Romans chapter one, verse 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed, against, uh, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's an interesting passage. It's funny because in the few verses before that, Paul says, hey, Romans, I'm ready to come and preach the gospel to you. I'm ready to come. Why, Paul? For it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God unto salvation. The most powerful message you will ever share with anybody is the gospel. It's the good news of salvation. It's the most powerful message you can ever share. You may come up with some really powerful insight in leadership or powerful insight on the psyche of man. You can come up with a powerful insight in technology, but the most powerful message you could ever share is the good news of salvation. And Paul says, I'm ready to come share because it's the power of God unto salvation. And then he takes another step further and he goes and he says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith that the just shall live by faith. It's a beautiful passage that Paul's excited to come and preach the gospel. He's excited to explain it to him because it's the power of God and it reveals the righteousness of God. But as soon as God reveals his righteousness, guess what he reveals? His attitude towards unrighteousness. And in verse 18, but in contrast, God has revealed his wrath against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, iniquity, sin, it drives us from God, not to God. It separates us from him. It drives us in a place that we can't hear his voice. We, we don't know what he's trying to tell us. And then what we begin to do is we isolate ourselves, don't we? I see it all the time. I've seen it in my own life. When, when sin gets a foothold and that old man gets a foothold in my life, then what do I want to do? I, I begin to separate myself. Separate myself from those brothers that I have in Christ that hold me accountable. 
from, from my other believing friends who would hold me accountable. And you begin, you begin to separate, don't you? And you isolate. And you take that sin and you try to shove it back here in a room and you shut the door on it and it gets all smelly and everything and you just hope nobody finds out about it. Because that's what, that's what unrighteousness does. It separates us from God. It suppresses the voice and the truth of God. Because the gospel is powerful enough to transform us. It's able to transform us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That we, would be, that we would be walking in his righteousness, walking after him, following after him. We could hear his voice. Those shepherds, when they led their sheep, the sheep followed and the sheep didn't know where he was taking them, but they believed and they trusted in the shepherd that he would take care of them and he would lead them. And we too, by faith, follow the, the shepherd and Jesus tells us in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. I am the shepherd. And that we follow him and we trust him and it's a walk of faith as we trust him. We don't always know where he's leading us, but we trust him because he's leading us for good. And he's given us that life that only he can give us. In fact, if you look in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. It doesn't say I am a good shepherd one of many. He's saying, I am the good shepherd. The article's there. It's definitive that he's the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. There's not another. He is the good shepherd. And he says he lays down his life for the sheep. The hireling, he, the hired man, he doesn't lay his life down. He sees the wolf coming. You know what he does? He runs because he doesn't care about the sheep. They're not his sheep. He only cares about himself. But Jesus lays his life down. When Jesus took on the likeness of sinful flesh and walked among humanity, and there he was in the midst of humanity, calling humanity to himself to believe, to trust, calling them. We found God in the midst of humanity, God in flesh, Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man. And he laid his life down. In fact, it goes on down in verse 17. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, verse 18, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. When Jesus was taken to the cross, he wasn't taken dragging and screaming and yelling. He went by his own initiative. Jesus didn't go to the cross forcefully. He went willingly because he lays his life down for the sheep. He lays his life down for you and I. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. He is our God. And he's earned that by his work on the cross. And he went to the cross and he laid his life down. But you know what? He can take his life up. And he did. He rose again for Jesus' death is, is not separated from resurrection. You can't separate them. For Jesus experiencing death, man, he experienced resurrection because just as they couldn't force him to the cross, they couldn't keep him in the grave. He rose from the dead and he gave us life. And the reason I know that I have life is because he's alive. He is living. He is the good shepherd. 
And he's worthy of my praise. And he's worthy of my surrender. He's worthy of me setting aside unbelief, setting aside iniquity, setting aside those things that would keep me from hearing his voice. That I might hear his voice. That I might not be deceived by the robbers and the thieves who pass by because I don't know their voice. I know his voice. And I trust him to lead me in the path of righteousness because he is my God. John ends this section and he says in verse 19 through 21, he said, there arose a division again among the Jews because of of these words. I wanna stop here for a second. Look, the gospel is confrontational. It is the most loving message that you can ever share. It's the most grace-filled message you can ever share. But people will become divided by it because of belief and unbelief. Not because of intelligence and ignorance. Not because of having or not having. Not because of status or not status. But because of belief or unbelief. And it divides and there arose a division among the Jews. In verse 20 it says, many of them were saying, he has a demon and he is insane. Why do you listen to him? This man's insane. Do you hear the things he says? He says he's God, come on. But he healed the blind. He rose the dead. He walked on the water. He commanded the winds and he commanded the sea. And the grave couldn't hold him any longer. He's not insane, he's God. Verse 21, it says, others were saying, these are not the sayings of, a, of one d- demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? No, he can't. So the question this morning as we conclude is what is your response? Belief or unbelief? Believing unto salvation and trusting him and cry, him for your salvation, but then also believing in your walk of faith throughout life experiencing the abundant life that he gives to you. Let's pray. Father God, this morning I just ask and pray that God, you would speak to us, your people, that we would have an understanding, Father, of our relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Let it never be about coming to a building and sitting in a room and just listening to another man. Gosh, no way. Let it be about a people who thirst for God, who thirst for you, who want to hear and know your voice, who long after you, oh Father. People who walk after you because you are the good shepherd. Father, as we prepare a time here for for communion, as we we partake, may we remember, Father, the the sacrifice of of the son, that that his body was broken for us, And his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. That through his work on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that we stand here and we approach the throne and we don't approach in fear. We don't approach, Father, finding judgment and wrath, but we find grace and we find mercy. Father, speak to us, your people, that we would not be blind. In Jesus' name, amen.